Welcome in. You are listening to Mile 8 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. I am Travis, joined as always by my guy, Benjamin Ramon Sessions. (laughs) Benny is back with us after fighting the cruel mistress of strep throat. Benjamin, how you feeling, bud? Uh, I feel a lot better (laughs) than a few days ago. You can reach us with questions and comments at secondsflat.com podcast at gmail.com we would love to hear from you later in this episode we'll have our discussion that we recorded earlier in the week with professor bill pierce co-author of run less run faster best-selling marathon 5k 10k training manual but first let's get into what is happening in the world of track and field and where was the heart of track and field last week my friend Greenville, South Carolina. Right here in the upstate Greenville, South Carolina with Greenville High alum Sandy Morris. Sandy set a new world's best for this year, leading all competition at 4.95 meters. Translate that so I understand Roughly approximate. How many feet do you think that is, Ben? I'm going with 16 feet. 16 feet and... A big smile when she made it over. <laughs> 16 feet, 3 inches for Sandy. She did go for a world record attempt of 5.07 meters and came up just short on her last jump. Uh, that is her second best height in her career. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, That's absolutely. Cool. Also had Sam Kendricks in town. Ah, the ivory skin of Sam Kendricks. There it is. Sammy K. Special K. Special K. World champion was the winner in the men's jump at the Liberty Bridge jump off here in downtown Greenville. So really fun event last Friday night. Local champion headed to great things once again for Sandy. So congratulations. In other sports, I want to get into a story that I just saw. Golf legends Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson have agreed to a Thanksgiving weekend unbuckle the pants after the turkey, get rid of the football game, laying down on the couch, little trip to fan, settle in, Tiger versus Phil, one-on-one dream match of the two greatest golfers of the past quarter century. $10 million on the line. Got me to thinking, what are the dream matchups we would love to see in track, field, road racing, trail? So... Benjamin, I'm going to give you the floor first. If you could see one matchup with only two men, two women on the track or racing on the road head-to-head. Currently or at any time? It's all yours, baby. Let's start with current. All right, so I would do two guys that specialize in two different events. Ooh, okay. I would do our South African 400 meter world record holder your boy wade van niekirk yes yeah there we go yes i i was waiting for you to say it so i didn't butcher it (laughs) for the unfamiliar uh against kenya's 800 meter young superstar emmanuel career okay in a 500 meter dash the 500 is because career is the only human to run under 143 in the 800 and under 44 seconds in the 400. So I want to see if his 800 strength plays an advantage just 100 meters over the world record holder's specialty distance. Okay. 
If you were going to predict that race, who do you think would win? I'm going with Emmanuel. Okay, I think I am too. Also, I don't think that a race that is over a lap can any longer be called a dash. I believe that's the, just the 500-meter run. Did I say dash? You did. Oh, but those boys would be dashing. They would. Those are two they da- are dashing. Dashing gentlemen. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think I'm going with Career because he is just, he's so close at 400 meters, right, to where yeah, Van Meekerk is. Back. And he's so strong and he's improving. It's a little unfair with Van Niekerk having been injured. Ah, uh, yes. Right. He did have that, what was it, hamstring surgery or and, ACL? <laughs> those are wildly different. <laughs> I, I don't know. They're popular sprinter injuries. <laughs> that is that is true. I think his also his focus is he wants to be as good at four or as he has been at four down at two and one he looks the other direction you know exactly that would be fun it's interesting that you picked 500 meters because that makes it a little bit more difficult for me because i think if we went to 600 it'd be a no-brainer yeah i'm going career could van niekirk hang on for another 100 meters is the the question. question and this is the guy that at the world champs the first time he medaled passed out yeah. Immediately crossing the line. Yeah. So he's leaving it out there. He's leaving it out there every 400. So I want to see if he finishes the 500. Does he respect the distance or go balls in like he does on his floor? Can he make one more turn around that oval? I'm going with career also, in part because I just really like him. Gosh, I got yes. a bit of a man crush on that guy. And he's he's had a great season so far, and I'm taking career. Though he did lose the African 800-meter championship. I don't know how much I care about that, in part because I'm not sure how much that event means. And there were all sorts of crazy like travel problems. People couldn't even get there. <laughs> I think that I value performances in the Diamond League. What he did at pre-classic after getting tripped up, that means a lot more to me. Now, I'm going to go with one that we might kind of get to see this fall and that's why i'm excited about this it. fall this fall coming to a marathon near you oh i know if you're one. a midwest listener yes we love you i love this i'm talking about galen versus mo yes rup farah chicago marathon they're both all in i only really like it if it's done with some pace all right if it's not like a sit and kick which not too downgrade the accomplishment that Rupp had by winning Chicago last year but the two running both at their best would make it a really fun duel you got guys with really similar PRs right they're only a few seconds apart Rupp's got him by a few seconds yes obviously Mo has Galen by a little bit on the track in recent years at 5k 10k but they've trained together and that's part of the element that's fun to me because I have really no reason to believe this, but I feel like there could be some bad blood after the the Nike Oregon Project breakup when Mo left as soon as there seemed like there could be some kind of controversy about performance-enhancing drugs. Now he's off doing who knows what with his own team, and there's... There's been Was that a little, a little insinuation of some foul play there? there with have, the who knows what? There have been whispers, and I'm I, I have no insights into that. So I don't I don't want to accuse one or the other. 
but I just wonder if there would be a little bit of friction and uh, two guys who are great training partners. And I just think it'll be a really fun matchup. I'm sure we're going to have an entire Chicago preview episode. That's mine. And I'm partial to the marathon, but Benji, what do you think? Yeah, I'd love to see the two former training partners go at it again. If you think about it, their last race against each other was the World Championship 10K, or Olympic Championship 10K, Mm -hmm. my bad, where Rupp actually tripped Farah and he hit the deck. Yep. So I don't think that contributed to any more bad blood, but I think we could see some news outlets try and make it seem like that's Yeah, make more out of that than it really was, because Galen held up for him, actually, after that, Yeah, helped him back up to the pack. Yeah, yeah. Awesome Uh, gesture, but... If you had to predict... Yeah, that's where I was going to go. Okay. Who are you leaning with? I'm going to take Galen. Ooh. I don't know if I should. I don't know if I like that prediction. I'm now on record having picked Rupp. We got a couple months before that actual race happens. I think that there is... If I, I think the two are fairly even right now at that event. I, I think Mo obviously has had the superior career. But Galen, with a little more experience in the marathon, he ran that time in Prague without the competition to drag him like Mo had when he ran a similar time in London. But you have to think how much Mo did slow down there. So if he had ran a more even race, how much faster could he have gone? Oh, I agree with that. I think he can run faster. I also think that if you put inject some degree of pace into Galen's race at Prague where he did a good deal of work, he can also move faster. So head-to-head ability level, I think it's fairly similar. I think that maybe there's a little bit of something about protecting a championship on American soil, too. And if you've won on a course before, like, you've already done it. You don't have to prove it to yourself. Yeah. Mentally, it's there. That's right. And I do think that, and Galen has, has said this in some interviews, at some point here, he's going to... You know, he made that jump from being 209 down to where he is now. And I think that he wants to chase something faster. And he's said many times, Olympics 2020 are the goal. And so he's got to prove he can beat guys like Mo. Yes, 100% agree. Now let's shake this up. Let's say you could open it up. It could be somebody now versus somebody in the past. It could be two of your favorite athletes from yesteryear. Give me a dream matchup that's not just two athletes we see today. My dream mashup, matchup. Your dream mashup. Yes, because they're going to do a little indie folk album I together think, after this. Yeah, it would Beyonce, be Beyonce Halo with Jay-Z Young Forever. <laughs> that's been done, I think. Yeah, that's why I brought it up. <laughs> All right, so my dream Maroon matchup. Maroon 5 Wiz no, Khalifa payphone. <laughs> Florida Georgia line and Nelly. Any the Alabama shakes. <laughs> anything Florida Georgia line did with Nelly. Cruise, baby. Ah, oh, okay. Your dream matchup. So my dream matchup would be at the 1000 meter race distance between 800 meter world record holder David Rudisha. Oh. And 1500 meter world record holder Hisam El Garouge. Okay. I thought of this one also, the El Garouge uh, versus DR matchup at a K would be a whole bundle of fun. Yes. Now, before you put any insight on this, something okay. a lot of people don't realize is that Rudisha has ran 340 in the 1500, Yeah. which I know is nowhere near LG. Yep. 
but it's strong for an 800. It is. It's still a 356, 57 mile. So you can't instantly say, oh, he's a 4800 type. Because the guy has strength. I actually wasn't going to say that at all. I'm going to pick up. Are you? I'm going for it. I'm Woo! all in. I. He's so good. All right. And he for, was. For anybody who, who questions his ability to win this race, get out the YouTube. <laughs> 2020 London Olympics. 2012. What did I say? 2020. Yeah, that's not going to be on YouTube yet. 2012 <laughs> London Olympics, 800. Most likely the greatest 800-meter race ever run. Oh, definitely. And watch him control that thing. From the gun. From the gun. A bit unexpected, just how much he controlled it and when he took the lead. I can't believe that he couldn't give me 200 more meters and take that race. I don't know. That's a lot to ask. But El Garouge, you got to remember, is is really more of a moving up from 1500 kind of guy 155 guy i always in in these hypotheticals and even with athletes i've coached (laughs) i always like to take the guy who's fast and move him up and that tends to be the one that i think is going to win i'd rather like let's say we put this on right now and they had we're running these all on thanksgiving and in their primes we're running these two guys and Radisha has a few months to move up from 800. I'm riding that pony. I guess with that as well, my question is, if Garouge is in his prime, are we able to test him for PEDs and EPO? Uh, sure, and I don't want to get into that discussion too much because it's just so hypothetical and hard to know. I, but is it? Well... I think that we realize the Moroccan testing regime that he was under was not very thorough in promoting clean sport. And while we have certainly seen Kenyan athletes test positive as well, it's not the systemic issue that we've had in other countries, like a Russia example, right? It, it tends to be a little more one-off, like some of the issues we've had here in the United States. Yes. And so I, I, it's a really tough value judgment for me. If I had to pick one who I thought was cleaner than the other, I'm taking David. But yes. I, I just want to take this for these athletes at their best running against each other and see what happens. Yeah. The thing that gives me suspicion with him, though, is just like how quickly he was able to recover from day-to-day training if you look at his logs. El Garouche, yeah. It's insane. And if he's clean... He can recover faster than anyone I've ever heard of, and that could be why he's the world record holder yes. at 15. If and he, I'd love to believe that storyline. If he is, he can come here, and I will worship at the altar of LG because— Even if he was a cheat, I would, because everyone else before him could have cheated and got away with it. Yeah, that's fair. And what Ben's referring to there is you can get access to his training logs online and see what he did. And, and the way he hammered pace and intervals just day after day is otherworldly and unhuman and would lead you to believe that maybe there was a little special sauce in the recipe. Beet juice. Beet juice. Yeah, I, I believe in beet juice. Okay, I'm going to go next well, let's do this. Since, oh, you have your from the past. Yeah, so if I was going to just pick two athletes from the past, I am taking Alan Webb 2001 
Jim Ryan, 1965. Oh, my God. In the dueling mile between the American high school record holder, Alan Webb, 353-4 at pre-classic, Jim Ryan, the previous record holder, the first American to break four minutes while in high school, 355-3. That was actually the year after he first broke four-minute mile. Because he did it as a 17-year-old? That's right. So he still had time. It took then three-plus decades for somebody to break Ryan's mark, and it was finally Webb in a professional contest, a great race at the mile at the pre-classic. So obviously, Webb goes on to become the American record holder in the mile in his summer of 2007. Ryan goes on to be a silver medalist in 68 at the 1500. That duel, the two greatest high school milers in American history, plus... I love the mystique of the mile. There are certain events that have a cachet on the track that others do not. I want to see guys do the 100-meter dash. I want to see them take one spin around the track, 400-meter, one lap. More than anything else, I want to see the one-mile race, not the 1500 one-mile race that the American viewer connects with. Ryan and Webb, who you got? Ryan. Tell me why. Because he ran 355 on cinders and crap shoes, not trained with the science of today. The What he went on to do, his 800 speed was far superior to Webb's. Mm-hmm. I've met Ryan, so I'm a little biased that way too genuinely nice guy yeah became a great american politician after his running career does a lot of speaking tours with christian groups is a really quality guy it's interesting because you picked your dream teams in our fantasy world cup draft based not at all on who was the best guy you were picking men who would punch out other men on the track to bring a little flair to your team so you've really had a change of heart here that would bring viewership to my team okay fair americans love a golden boy and Ryan is that for sure, right? yes. Sports Illustrated cover boy. I'm going Ryan too, and I'm not doing it just because he's a good guy. I am doing it because, as you said, the some of the equipment advances, the, the quality of the track they would run on. Now, I'm not as bought in on the training differences. I do think he could benefit from some modern understandings of science. I also wonder, though, how sometimes we have used that to limit ourselves to and to create some barriers maybe we've imposed because what Ryan did as a high schooler in his workouts, no one does today. We consider it to be crazy. The, The hard 400 repeats and the numbers that he put in. But for him, a guy who has said publicly time and again, I didn't have any other sport I was any good at. I tried out for baseball, football, basketball. I got cut from all the teams. This was the one place where I could go just bury myself day after day after day, and it's part of what made me great. And maybe we would benefit from dialing that back a little bit and being fresher and healthier. But on the other hand, maybe we would be limiting the runner that he became. 
that's a whole different debate we could have in the future about scientific training at, at the mile distance. But I do think he most certainly would benefit from the technological advances. And two seconds is not a big enough of a gap. Uh, right. I think to, if we put them together with that one-on-one with that crowd in Eugene that Webb benefited from. Oh. It'd be a whole lot of fun, though. I would love to see. That is my dream match, uh, the high school dream mile, Alan Webb against Jim Ryan. I also would take a step back and go to a kind of matchup of past athletes that I never got the chance to see either of them. Yes. And I don't really care what event they're doing right now because they were both really good at a bunch of different ones. I would love to have the opportunity to line up under today's conditions again Jesse Owens, Jim Thorpe, two incredible athletes from the first half of the 20th century who were more than just one-trick ponies, right, who could do a little bit of everything. And I don't know, maybe we're doing a decathlon. I don't even care. I just want to see Jesse Owens, Jim Thorpe, go do something for $10 million. I'm tuning in. (laughs) Golf. Yeah, they could golf for $10 million. I'd watch. I'm all in. Any other thoughts on on past versus past that you want to add any others that you'd like to see oh i don't know the one you just said was pretty incredible i i know this has happened but i personally would have loved to see boston billy and frank go at yeah it. so i thought of that one as well i and i was going to put that in here i'm glad you brought it up boston billy rogers frank shorter i want them going head to head at boston just oh, because wow. yeah. uh, that's fun. And I want them both at their peak. And, yeah, we came close to seeing that. Their their, their peaks didn't quite overlap. It staggered by a little bit by a couple years there. But if we could just time warp them by a little bit and get to see that. And, and again, it's funny because we were watching some Bill Rogers videos before we yes. came on air today. And watching some of his training. But also watching footage from Boston 77 and just seeing the start lines a mess people are all over the place people are driving up to the people start are line. driving up to the start line you know driving backwards down the course stuff you could never do today right with the tens of thousands of people and the security but for us to maybe go back in time and be on the course right next to those guys 40 years ago in their prime that'd be pretty fun now, I will say I would have loved to seen a Boston Billy Steve Prefontaine beer mile oh those two guys can get after it. Yes. I'm going to go now to a past versus present race that I would love to see. Hit me. I want Shelby Houlihan and Mary Decker Slaney yes. racing the mile. Yes. We have our 2018 sweetheart of track, Shelby Houlihan. It's been the summer of Shelby. Against kind of a golden girl turned villain. And Mary Decker, who was too young for the Olympics all the way back in 1972, fast forward through this incredible career where she's dealing with injuries, but she's putting up these amazing times to 1984 on the track in Los Angeles in the 3K against Zola Budd in one of the most famous moments in Olympic history, the infamous trip that Mary Decker Slaney plays up after the race as an intentional trip by Zola Budd, who becomes this scapegoat. And the footage and then the stories afterwards would not suggest that to be true. If you want to add to your summer reading list, Olympic Collision is a fantastic look into that event. 
Mary is the first American to break 420, or excuse me, let me restate that, the first woman, period, to break 420 in the mile. And then she later on, her career spans into the 90s, and she got caught up in a PED scandal at the end. So there's a bit of good versus evil that's way oversimplifying what we have. But what you'd certainly have is a premier current miler, 5K American record holder now, against perhaps the best from a previous generation. I'm going to take Shelby Houlihan in this race, and maybe it's a recency bias on my part, just how well she's running right now. But it's how she finishes the I know. She just, she almost feels unstoppable, and it's wild because you could very well just make this same race and mention Jenny Simpson's name instead of Shelby Houlihan, and it's still a fantastic one-on-one dream race. But what Shelby Houlihan has done this season, she has taken that mantle, it seems, for the future from, from Jenny Simpson. And maybe she goes down as the, the greatest American in this 1500 5K realm. Which, to be fair, Jenny held that mantle for 10 years very strongly. Absolutely. And she's, you know, as we talked about in the previous episode, she's still breaking records. She set the American two-mile record earlier this year. Yes. She has not fizzled out. She's run great races this year. Which is just to speak even higher of Shelby. That's exactly right. That's why Shelby Houlihan is so fun to watch because she is not beating a Jenny Simpson that's fading off into the sunset. No. She's beating a Jenny Simpson that's still near her peak and is still going to be, in my opinion, an Olympic threat in 2020. Yep. Opinion on who you would take there? Who? I'm going to lean towards Shelby as well. Okay. Uh, Like I said, her finishing speed this summer has just been unreal. Closing a 14.34 5K in 60 seconds. Yeah. Collegiate guys running 14.30 don't do that. I'm going with her all the way. So those would all be a ton of fun to watch. And looking forward, actually, to seeing this golf match. I'm not a huge golf fan. Maybe I'll turn on the majors, but this sounds kind of cool. I know the guys are a little past their prime with Tiger and Phil, yeah. but I know Tiger has said in the past that he wanted the amount to be enough to make the competition nervous, and that's kind of fun to think about that much riding on the line that two golfers who have won multiple major championships could be a little bit nervous. Do you have an opinion either way on the golf match? That's interesting because for most of their careers, I would have said Tiger. Yes. For the past five-plus years, I would have said Phil. Tiger's playing pretty well right now. Like Mm -hmm. He started to get back into shape a little bit. It's like a little cub right now, not quite a tiger. He is. He's ready to roar. More of a meow. but It is. I'm going to take Phil only because I question if... Is Tiger completely healthy, and is he ready to maintain this momentum? Being three months out, just I don't know that if he'll be healthy or not. If they both show up healthy on that day, I'm going to completely flip-flop <laughs> and take Tiger, because Phil has always shown some 
tendency to let the pressure get to him a little bit more. Tiger is so good under pressure in Very major championships. Cold. Yes, and we've seen once or twice Phil with a chance to win a U.S. Open and a tee shot goes awry on the last hole kind of thing. So I'll take Tiger. But enough golf talk. That's not why we're here. We're going to bring you now our interview with Bill Pierce of Furman University and Run Less, Run Faster fame. He'll be talking to you a little bit about the training program, so we have a good discussion with him about running and a little taste of basketball as well. He goes into his collegiate basketball career and gives some really cool insights to his playing days. All right, we are excited to welcome in Professor Bill Pierce from Furman University of the Department of Health Sciences and the Furman Institute of Running and Scientific Training, FIRST, and also the lead author of Run Less, Run Faster. Welcome in. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. It's really exciting to have you. Let's start right there with Run Less, Run Faster, which has been an incredibly popular training guide for all kinds of folks in recent years. What was the genesis of creating the Run Less, Run Faster programs? Well, it really goes back to the early 1980s, and I came to Furman University as a professor in 1983, Scott Murr, uh, my co-author and running mate, uh, was a senior uh, at Furman, and we began running together and have run together for 35 years. And uh, during those years, in the the 80s, uh, the focus was largely on 10Ks uh, as well as marathons and we trained for those. Um, we, in, by the mid-80s, late-80s, we both got involved in triathlons, and we eventually found that we could no longer run six days a week and maintain all the swimming and biking that was necessary uh, to be a triathlete. But we didn't want to get slower. Our, still, our main focus was 10Ks and marathons. And as we evolved, as our training evolved into more swimming, biking, uh, we found that we could not run six days a week. We were running five days, maybe four days. Remarkably, our 10K and marathon times did not suffer. In fact, we got faster. So we maintained this combination of cross-training and running and over time uh, developed that into a training program and that was really the genesis. So born of your own experience. It really is. So for the folks who haven't read the book and don't know the story, um, you focus them in on several days a week of running in combination with cross training like you just mentioned. What have you found this program to be successful for? Who does it work for best? What's your target audience? There are several groups that have found this to be really um, compatible with their lifestyle, and that is professional people who don't have a lot of time for maybe running five days, six days a week, and have said to me, I can manage the three key runs that you have identified that are vital to improving running performance. Also, uh, triathletes obviously mm-hmm. like it. Many of them run three times a week and then add in the biking and swimming. And 
I think that there's two other groups that come to mind, and that is uh, older runners Mm -hmm. who find they need more recovery time between runs and say three running running hard three times a week uh, I need that recovery time and runners who have been injured and that's probably one of the biggest groups uh, runners who have been injured and just cannot we can't all tolerate running five or six times a week uh, I know elite runners are able to do that but they're they're a very special group sure so you mentioned the three key runs that you build into your programs. Could you discuss those a little? Yes. Uh, so key run number one is what most people refer to as intervals or track repeats. Um, it's focused on fast running, maybe as 20 minutes, 20 to 25 total minutes of running faster than your 5K time. And those can be packaged Anything from 400 meter repeats up to uh, 1K repeats. And then key run number two is focused on improving lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold, lactate term point goes by different names. But that ability to run at a very high percentage of your uh, capacity, of your aerobic capacity, and try to maintain that. Many people think that's one of the toughest runs because anywhere from 25 to 40 minutes of beyond comfort running. Mm -hmm. And then key run number three is the long run. And depending upon whether you're training for 5Ks or marathons, that run can be anywhere from seven, eight miles to 20 miles. And that, of course, is to improve that Uh, aerobic metabolism. Great. So let's start with the first there, with the interval training you Mm -hmm. referred to, the faster stuff. Um, Why did you choose to emphasize this type of training, what uh, we often may refer to as like a VO2 max development, as opposed to other types of of training that you could have chosen? Right. Well, the, 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 the three key runs are generally characterized as challenging but doable. Because we only run three times a week, we put more emphasis on quality than quantity. The track repeats are important because uh, to improve VO2, uh, your, your, your engine uh, mm-hmm. for running, uh, but they also are very important for uh, biomechanical development. Runners that are, the faster you run, generally, the better mechanics you have. Running speed is determined by stride length times stride frequency. And you get most runners out in on a, doing intervals, their frequency increases, their stride length, their power push off is greater. And that's, that's what you must do to get faster. Did you ever, in crafting that key run, did you ever consider developing those biomechanics in another way? A lot of programs, they incorporate something that perhaps resembles marathon pace more closely and then try to incorporate like strides to, to create the speed. Why did you think that the, the interval training was a better mechanism? Mm-hmm. Well, 
we do all three things you just mentioned. We do strides uh, as part of the warm-up uh, for the intervals. So we, we have that. And we also suggest doing strides after workouts, mm-hmm. uh, such as the, um, uh, the, uh, the tempo runs. Mm-hmm. And we have runners doing marathon pace. If they're going to run, uh, we incorporate a lot of running at marathon pace because you, want to bec- you become more economical by running at a certain pace. And so if you're doing marathon training, we'll have some of the tempo runs, a lot of the tempo runs right at marathon pace. Okay, great. So you're working them into key run two, yes. uh, essentially. Yes. Um, and to move on to that second key run, uh, you talked about the challenge yeah. of that uncomfortable or comfortably hard, some folks yes, will refer right. to, 25 yeah. to 40-minute run. Yeah. Uh, I find the mental challenge there to be significant as well. Could you kind of correlate that? Absolutely, and that's, it's, we talk about that when we uh, work with runners, is you have to stay focused. You have to concentrate, because if you're doing the, the uh, tempo run, you let your mind wander, then you tend to move toward comfort. Mm-hmm. Uh, I taught a a seminar at Furman uh, called Running and Being. And one of the things that I had to, the students do is to do a, a run that where they dissociate, let their mind wander, listen to music, whatever. And also do one where they were associate running, where you're focused. And certainly they could tell the difference in their pace just without us uh, unconsciously will change so yeah the tempo run is great for causing yourself to stay focused and run beyond comfort which of course is what you have to do when you race yeah do you use any mental cues there when you talk about that to, to focus yes, in what kind I do. of tools do you use i do and so you know sort of having a mantra and we talk about a variety of ones that you might want to do but also so you might have a little saying to yourself you know stay focused concentrate um, or in some way uh, my colleague will even uh, write on the bill of his cap where he can look up mm, and see yeah. uh, that little saying whatever you're saying is for you uh, but we also talk a good bit about visualization and so once we begin pick out a race, then we start visualizing how you're going to perform at that race. That's great. That's always super helpful. Yeah. Moving to the long run, so yes. there, your, your third key run. Do you adapt and craft that long run then based on a time goal that someone has in, in accomplishing their marathon? Um, or is that uh, universal? to you as you move mm-hmm. through the system yeah no all of our runs are based on time and distance and run less run faster we have developed a, in our new book uh train smart run forever uh, running for time and using perceived exertion and i think that works for older runners in particular or, or runners that don't have a specific time goal but are focused more on fitness but for those who want to run less run faster is focused on getting faster 
and meeting a specific uh, race goal time. Mm-hmm. So the times for those long runs, I, I think the if you look at all, you know, the three key runs I've just described are common to most all training programs. But what makes run less, run faster, distinctive is the most distinctive is the long run, which is only 15 seconds to 45 seconds slower than marathon pace as you go through the 16 weeks, whereas many marathon programs are anywhere from 60 to 120 seconds slower than marathon pace. How often would someone do a run at that 15 to 30 seconds slower than marathon pace, that long run? How yeah, often they and, that's, that? and that's once a week mm-hmm. um, uh, for the 16 weeks. It'll start out maybe at 60 seconds over marathon pace, 45 seconds, 30 seconds, 15. Uh, and, some, and some folks, and even myself, uh, will do a 15 to 20-mile run within three or four weeks of marathon, right at marathon pace. So there's uh, a couple of themes there I want to explore yeah. a little bit. And the first with the um, workout that you prescribe there, that is a, a pace that a lot of elite coaches are using, um, like Canova programs mm-hmm. will use a 90% of marathon pace yeah. uh, long run for, uh, he'll often put his in minutes, but maybe you're running two hours at that pace. I know that uh, Steve Magnus that uses some of that as well, whether uh, you're kind of close to marathon pace, you're, you're stimulating some of that, you're pushing yourself a little mm-hmm. bit, but, but slightly more comfortable. So I went down that path in my last training cycle a little more with, mm-hmm. with a good deal of success. Why do you find that f- maybe it's 15, 30, whatever the number is of seconds slower than your marathon pace to be so effective? To run fast, you got to run fast. That's well said. <laughs> I mean, without yeah. getting, uh, you know, talking like a physiologist, mm-hmm. but just uh, sort of intuitively. And, and I think there's a, you've already mentioned the mental aspect of running. Certainly going to that starting line with the confidence that I can maintain this pace uh, without a taper for 15 to 20 miles, it just takes a lot of the uncertainty Uh, out of that and it it makes you more confident but it's also the case of you know principle of specificity uh, that to for the body the body is amazing how it can adapt and one of the things that is really value helpful is to adapt to running a certain pace when I when I first meet runners I ask them to tell me about their training and they usually tell me about the number of miles per week that they train or uh, and I say well how about pace and I say well I generally run it this number of miles and these number of minutes and so basically they're doing a lot of running at one pace or they're very economical the body becomes uh, adapts and becomes very economical at that pace I find the sort of evolution during those 16 weeks to be uh, really revealing because you start out with maybe that being difficult to run those miles at that pace. But as you adapt from week to week, you find that uh, you can handle the faster pace. 
Also, you said the uh, the length of that long run, where other programs may go farther uh, on the distance yes. on their long run. That approach is a bit more like a, a Brooks Hansen's uh, approach, where they limit the uh, the long run distance. Mm-hmm. Why do you choose to cap that? What's the value um, instead of you'll see folks that are on plans that maybe they're going up to 22 miles or something like that before a marathon? There's no magic number. Mm-hmm. Is it is it 16 miles? Is it 18 miles? Is it 20 miles? Is it 22 miles? Some people like over distance. Mm-hmm. They'll even go over 26 miles. I've played around with it from a personal standpoint and generally found that running 20 miles. But I can, I, and, and probably we selected that because it's a good round number, plus the fact that most people in a marathon find that after 20 miles it becomes really difficult so knowing that you can run the 20 miles that's that's good so would i rather in training run 18 miles or 20 miles at a faster pace or 22 to 24 miles at a slower pace oh it is the pace that causes the challenge Mm -hmm. I mean, most people that are running, if they, you know, we could go out and run 25 or 30 miles if we lessen the pace, right, and stay comfortable. So the challenge in a marathon is maintaining that pace. So I have recently found in in recent years there are more people running marathons well over four miles, uh, four minutes, uh, four four hours. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry and uh, five hours and six hours Mm -hmm. so i've had to adapt when coaching them going to time rather than distance Mm -hmm. i think it's pretty difficult recovering from anything more than three hours probably maybe even two and a half i've always found that getting beyond two hours recovery is a lot harder so i don't want someone who's going to plan to run a 530 five-hour and 30-minute marathon running 20 miles in training. I yeah. think the, the recovery and the, the damage uh, to the micro tears, et cetera, is just too hard. So a sliding scale depending on the, the goals and yes, the race. Yes, yeah. yes, If you were training folks who were running more, if we were to step away from the run less, mm-hmm. run faster style program, do you think there would be a space for multiple styles of long run that you would like to use so to take that longer slower one and buttress it with a closer to race pace type run or do you value one of i mean would you still value the the pace oh uh, the variety would be fine you know so if someone could tolerate that you know as you said maybe one week going faster one week going longer Sure. There, there are so many ways to train. Yeah. All you have to do, and, and I, I mentioned this a bit in a Train Smart Run Forever, even have a chapter about uh, different training programs, and, and go back as far as uh, Pavo Nurmi, mm-hmm. uh looking at all the very successful runners, Shorter, Rogers, and, and um, you know, they, they've been, there are many successes using different styles of training and so we've never claimed that run less run faster is the best training program um 
because obviously individuals uh, adapt differently. And so we've just said many people have used Run Less, Run Faster successfully. And it may work for you, but certainly there are runners who have tried it and I'm sure found that it was uh, that they they preferred training a different way. Yeah, I think belief in the training program and confidence in it regardless sure. of the program is, is hugely yeah. significant. Uh, you just said you won't claim it's the best, but yeah. I think you would admit it's unique compared to a lot of the other systematic approaches that are out that people tend to follow for a marathon. Yes, and and, and the fact is, you know, when you're developing a program uh, that that individuals are going to use across the board, across ages, then you can't make all of the little changes. If I'm coaching someone, I may adapt that sure. program a bit, depending upon how well they handled last week. Mm-hmm. But I think that I learned early that runners like structure and they like accountability. Mm-hmm. So often runners have said to me, just tell me what to do and I will do it. Mm-hmm. So now you have 16 weeks. You've got 47 workouts before your race. <laughs> and it tells you exactly what to do. I think that's part of it. The other part is it gives you a distance and a time. So you've got accountability and you've got structure. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why uh, for the last uh well, since the book has been published over 11 years now, that there are so many people that have uh, latched on to it. Great. To the cross-training segment there, you stumbled into it somewhat because <laughs> dealing with triathlons. Right, right. And um, the, the cycling, the swimming, rowing, those elements. Do you value any particular cross-training over another as a mechanism for improving running? Mm-hmm. Well, first, we suggest uh, cross-training that's going to be non-weight-bearing mm-hmm. to, uh, again, to uh, enhance the recovery. Mm-hmm. So the cycling, swimming, rowing are good. I, I know mm-hmm. a lot of people like to do the elliptical and stair climbing, etc., and it, it, that's that's fine, and some of these... Uh, equipments now that um, mirror running uh, those are fine and particularly uh, we'll use those if individuals who have been injured and can't handle impact but want to keep the running but we prefer the non-weight bearing and uh, one of the things that I've found is yeah certainly biking helping uh, to build the quads um, but the swimming is good if you're a good swimmer. Yeah, <laughs> that you can be tough for a lot of if, runners. If you aren't a good swimmer, you're probably not going to get much of a workout. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I often tell people, if you really want to, if you haven't gone through age group swimming or worked with, you know, join master swimming, it's going to take you a couple years to really develop a good technique to where you can get a great workout. So that's a drawback for some. Uh, rowing is good just because when you talk about developing max VO2, uh, it is using such a large uh, muscle mass. And so it's, it's a demanding exercise. The big thing is with cross-training, I find you can do a hard 
swim workout. You can do a hard rowing workout and uh, still the next day go run hard. Yeah. Uh, which when I was running six days a week, would, couldn't necessarily do. Yeah. So your research right now, what are we doing at first right now and, and what can we expect uh, in the future from you? We, we've been putting a lot of emphasis recently on gait analysis and we have a, a motion capture system here of eight cameras and can do an analysis that will give you uh, extensive uh, information. And I, and I know this has been an area where over the years some of the conventional wisdom is that don't try to change your biomechanics, mm-hmm. it's natural. And that may be true. But, the, but what has really concerned me about working with runners is that they get injured and it's in many ways it's almost a perfect sport you can do it anytime any place in any almost in any weather conditions and all you need you don't need any special equipment a pair of shoes a pair of shorts and you're ready to go and uh, but depending upon which study you look at 70 to 80 percent of runners will develop an injury and uh, so we're trying to look at at that and we've worked with some physical therapists some PhDs in biomechanics and trying to identify you know some anomaly in your stride in your gait but the biggest thing I think we've seen is identifying muscular weakness And by identifying muscular weakness, so many runners are weak in the hips. And and then what we do is give them exercises to strengthen. Uh, and if you look at runners, particularly, say, in a, in a marathon, but even in shorter races, and look at them uh, in the last 10% of the race, and their form has fallen apart. And a lot of that has to do with weak muscles Mm -hmm. and um, so we're spending time with that yeah with the athletes I work with we always discuss how in running you're moving straight forward and not working muscles around the side of your body that create some of that imbalance and weakness Uh, I know when I uh, finish a race and you get the race pictures sent to you one of the first things I do is I never buy them but I look through them because I like to see what the form looks like at the end and you're right it's it's easy to to break down the, the, later on you're, you're what I call staring at your shoelaces <laughs> that is exactly right yes sir yep could you share some information about some of the programs you do here at the university, like the running retreats and some of those things yeah. you offer? Well, we do have a human performance laboratory, and we offer everything from body composition to gait analysis to metabolic testing. And we can do, we do that on a regular basis, uh, scheduling individuals. But uh, certainly... Uh, our big events each year are, are running, learning. We call it learning and running retreat. And we use the word retreat rather than camp because it's not a place where you come and do a lot of running. It's a place where you come, you get fully tested in the, in the lab with VO2 lactate threshold, and then do a thorough gait analysis, body composition. We have lectures. We have demonstrations. Uh, we'll take you through a cross-training workout. We'll go into the dance studio and do flexibility. Uh, we'll talk about nutrition. 
uh, we go through the training program and we sit down with each individual uh, and develop a training program for them or each individual and go over their uh, their gait analysis so we like to think of it as a, a big focus on learning uh, and it's three and a half days and we've had people come from Asia, Europe, South America, Central America, uh, I think a dozen countries and more than 40, 40 states. That's a neat opportunity. How could people find out more information about those? They can go to our website uh, and then there's uh, information about the ones. We're finished for 2018. Uh, we'll be having uh, holding a couple in 2019. Super. And you've mentioned your career as an athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could pick one race that you would say, I'd love to go back and experience that again or, or run that one more time or perhaps recommend it to some of your athletes, what's your favorite experience from your career? I know that's a big question. There's, it, there's it a lot of a great ones. Yeah, you, you've, you've run more than 250 races, <laughs> more than 40 marathons, of course. Uh, but, but certain ones um, uh, do stand out. I particularly enjoy the uh, enjoyed the St. George Marathon out in Utah. Yeah, um, it's one that attracts a lot of people because it's a net downhill, uh, but a lot of people go there and are disappointed because the downhill just destroys their quads mm-hmm. and they're not able to take advantage uh, at the end of the race. But it's it's spectacular scenery. You start in the dark. The, the sun comes up over the mountain, silhouetted against the mountain. And then at about mile uh, 12, you look out and you see the sun on the sandstone or red sandstone. It, it's, it's really uh, uh, very scenic and, and plus the fact that I ran well there. There you go. <laughs> I'm actually registered for that in October oh, because of that scenery oh, you talked yes, about. Yeah. I, I went on the website and saw the pictures. And it's, I a, it's, a, it's, a, it. it's a great race. You... you um, you start up at a at a mile high, and uh, so there's a little bit of uh, thin air to deal with, but it's it's a great race. Really cool. All right, let's transition to our bell lap with Professor Pierce. Okay. We're going to go through some quick questions with you, and I'm going to start with the transition there from your running career <laughs> to a couple things about your basketball career. You competed on some really good collegiate basketball teams at Davidson. First, who is the best player you ever played against? Ooh. Um, there are a lot of... A I lot know, of, I don't want to step uh, on toes because I'm sure ones. there's a, a, um, some good ones, but if anybody um, sticks out. Certainly uh, John Roach at South Carolina was yeah. a very good player. Uh, Prolific scorer. Yes, uh, and uh, Charlie Davis at Wake Forest mm-hmm. was a really good player. Uh, Artist Gilmore, yeah, at Jacksonville, Jacksonville, yeah, was was awfully tough. Yeah, future multiple time All Star. Yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, you grew up in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Were you a Jerry West fan growing up? Every schoolboy in West Virginia grows up uh, idolizing Jerry West. I bet. Actually, um, in his his team, uh, his high school team uh, won a state championship. And so 11 years later, my high school won a state championship. And, and uh, so that was a thrill getting to play uh, in, in Morgantown in the field house where, where Jerry West played. 
and a few years ago, I, uh, when I was president of a Southern Conference, we inducted Jerry West into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. So I got to uh, spend a little time with my idol. Fantastic. Any uh, specific memory of him from when you were younger that sticks out of a, of a moment in his career that maybe epitomizes the logo to you? Yeah. Well, you know, when you talk about Jerry West, uh, then that's brings me back to our house in West Virginia, where we put the radio in the center of the uh, of the table. My father and I sat there. I kept score, and uh, so so many times Jerry West. You know, West Virginia would be down, and then in the last five minutes, Jerry West would go on a scoring. Uh, spree and and win the game and uh, so there were there were many great moments there. Those moments that earned him that nickname, Mister Clutch. That's right. Yeah, I bet a lot of people uh, can relate to gathering around to listen on the radio. Yes, for a yes. Generation, See, the then, games weren't on the television. That's then, right. Yeah, and, it was on the radio. And that distinctive voice that you heard. That's um, right. I know I grew up as a Reds fan and hearing uh, Joe Nuxall and Marty Brenneman yeah. for years and years. It just became right. iconic. So yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. All right, you've finished a race. What's the first thing you crave after you're going through the finish line? Oh, you know, I, I am not someone who generally wants to eat okay. after a race. Yeah. You know, I'll drink some water or drink some sport, uh, maybe a little sport drink or a, a, a soda uh, but it takes me a while to get a, get an appetite okay you're a better man than me I have, <laughs> I have no discipline once I come through that line um, how many hours of sleep per night do you normally get uh, less than what is recommended <laughs> okay and uh, so I anywhere from usually six to seven hours Best thing you've read recently? Mm. I just finished a trilogy of books by uh, Chris Stewart about living in uh, Andalusia in southern Spain and uh, developing a farm. So those three books were good. But right now I'm reading uh, Tony Jutz's uh, Post-War, and it's a, a very lengthy volume about uh, Europe and uh, after World War II and uh, each country and how it dealt with uh, the uh, uh, redevelopment after the war. Along those lines a little bit then, um, in your travels uh, with your work, is there a favorite place that you've gotten the opportunity to, to visit and, and see and explore? Uh, I've traveled extensively in, in uh, Europe and just came back from two weeks in, in the Czech Republic, uh, um, uh, Slovakia and Poland, but I've spent the most time in in Spain and know it quite well, uh, so I, I really enjoyed that. Neat. And what uh, shoe are you training in right now? Well, I uh, am. I run in New Balance uh, 880s. Mm-hmm. I've run in New Balance for the last 11 years uh, because they have been very kind to provide me shoes. That's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. Well, Professor Bill Pierce, thank you very much for joining us. It has been a pleasure, and uh, best of luck to your programs in the future. Oh, thank you very much. All right. That is a wrap for Mile 8 of the Seconds Flat podcast. Before we sign off, I want to let you know we do have Seconds Flat running gear now available. Get in that Seconds Flat singlet like your favorite professional athletes. Such as Noah Little Lyles and Eric Avila. <laughs> yeah, they're probably not actually going to be in it, but we are really getting after them, hoping we can apply some pressure. You look shocked that they're not actually wearing it. <laughs> I'm sorry. To... I was very disappointed. Yeah, it is disappointing. But you can be the trendsetter. We want to give away some Seconds Flat podcast gear. All you need to do is email us, secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. Tell us your favorite moment from the show and your dream matchup. And we'll be sending one your way free of charge. Putting it on the tab of run-in employee James Brooks. He is racking up quite a tab here recently. <laughs> he might actually listen this week. Yeah, that's, that's doubtful. We will see you next time. Everybody have a great week. Bye.